the Jewish views on Rigby and Pella. As the royal warrant is lost following the publication of her autobiography, we speak to June Kenton. Jewish Rome tour guide Stephen Burstein on how the Italian capital has inspired his forthcoming lecture. And Goods for Good, we learn about the charity redistributing surplus items to those most in need. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The government has said it will fund a £144,000 project that extends the Holocaust Educational Trust Auschwitz programme to universities for the first time. It means that 200 students from across the country will be able to visit the former Nazi death camp and return to lead seminars in an effort to target anti-Semitism on campus. The community secretary, Sajid Javid, said it was one of the most powerful tools to fight bigotry. A hard-left takeover of the Labour Party's Disputes Committee has led to concern over future and ongoing investigations into racism and anti-Semitism within the party. The committee decides whether allegations are looked into or dismissed. It comes after the long-standing chair, Anne Black, was beaten by Christine Shawcroft, who will now head the influential body. Ms Shawcroft is backed by momentum, usually deemed to be a hard-left movement within Labour. A Jewish burial society has called for the removal of Mary Hassel, the senior coroner at St Pancras in central London. Miss Hassel told Jewish leaders that no death would be prioritised in any way because of the religion of the deceased, meaning a prompt burial might not be possible. Lawyers for the Adath Yisrael Burial Society of Stamford Hill said it amounted to a blanket and disproportionate refusal to respect religious beliefs. A representative of the society, together with Marie van der Zyl from the Board of Deputies, are due to meet Hassel to discuss the issue. The director of the lingerie firm Rigby Impella said she felt absolutely sick to have lost the company's royal warrant. June Kenton, the Queen's bra fitter, wrote her memoirs called Storm in a D-Cup last year, in which she revealed how she achieved global success and hundreds of famous clients, including the Queen, the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret. Shortly afterwards, a letter which apparently mentioned the book informed her the warrant had been cancelled. Buckingham Palace wouldn't comment. And we'll be finding out more about this when we speak to June Kenton later in the show. And finally, a 21-year-old Jewish woman has qualified for the final round of the Miss Germany 2018 contest. Tamar Morali qualified to compete against 20 other women after winning the title of Miss Internet. Organisers told her she's the first Jewish woman to get this far in the competition. She was born in the German city of Karlsruhe, but grew up in Austria, where she was active in the Jewish community. The title will be decided on February the 24th. Those are the headlines. Let's take a look at the sport now. The world's top Jewish tennis player, Diego Schwarzman, has reached the third round of the Australian Open for the first time. The Argentine, who's ranked 26 in the world, will next face Ukrainian Alexander Dolgopolov for a place in the last eight. Israeli interest at the tournament ended early, with both Dudi Seller and Jonathan Ehrlich knocked out in the first round of the singles and doubles competition. Ahead of next month's Winter Olympics, one of Israel's best medal hopes, Vladislav Bikonov, won gold at the European Short Track Speed Skating Championships. Set to be part of the country's largest ever delegation to the Games, he said he feels great and is in his best shape ever going into an Olympics. 
And finally, Derby County striker Nick Blackman has said he hopes to play for Israel one day. Currently enjoying a loan spell at Maccabi Tel Aviv, the 28-year-old has Jewish roots and said it would be a great honour to represent them. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. So that's your news and your sport. Now, the Jewish Views continues with Phil Dave. Vivian, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. Let's start off, as we usually do, with a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Front page this week, government funds Auschwitz trips for university students. Yes, an important story this that broke just a week or so before we mark Holocaust Memorial Day. The front line in the battle against anti-Semitism has been fought in, in the last few years at least I think on campus incidents recently that, that stick in the mind of the UCL incident, the Oxford University Zio episode things that are so ass that have left a very bad taste in the mouth. Well, the government hopefully are going to hit this right between the eyes and start rolling out trips to Auschwitz for university students. It's a big, big difference, I think, in terms of having a, a rite of passage and seeing these things firsthand. I think seeing is believing, seeing is understanding, and it's really good now that you've got students not only at secondary school level in the Lessons from Auschwitz programme that's been going for almost 20 years, nearly 35,000 people, I think, have gone through that and experienced that extraordinary rite of passage. But now higher education gets a chance to do it too. Fran, I'm loath to put a dampener on this, but I can't help but think out loud and say that surely when you come to university age, that's more about young adults making a choice for themselves. And there's not going to be anywhere that says this is compulsory, I wouldn't have thought, unless it is for a certain type of course. Surely the better attitude would be to try and make it more compulsory for school pupils so that they know about it before university years and therefore have that mindset before they go on campus. I think absolutely you're right in the one sense that secondary school students need to learn about the Holocaust and at a level that is perhaps deeper than they have in previous years. It's not enough to just know the the baseline facts of what happened, statistics and things. They need to try and really experience and grasp the concept of what the Holocaust was. But at the same time, I would say something like this is really encouraging. When you go off to university, it's often a time in your life when you are a young adult and therefore actually quite impressionable in lots of ways. You can be swayed by lots of different causes and campaigns and you're really discovering who you are. So I think to have something like this, bringing the Holocaust you know, into, into your realm a little bit more, it's not just in a textbook anymore. It's sending you out to Auschwitz. It's experiencing first-hand accounts of witnesses who were there. So that can't be a bad thing at all. It's not just a day trip. I mean, I've, I've done it and you have to be at Luton at 5am. That's, that's, that's a, a trial in itself. It's not just a 16-hour profound experience it's what you then do with that information and that experience afterwards and this scheme will see them lead seminars hopefully lead debate and forums it's a legacy i think that the event and the experience then progresses through your life and as fran alluded to university days are the days where you are are most open to new ideas new experiences and new influences so it's great that this has now moved on into, into that spectrum of education Okay, we do need to fit one or two other stories in, but just before we do, one other point as well, though, is that do we believe this is going to help potentially in the battle against anti-Israel rhetoric that seems to go on quite a lot on campuses? Because 
although this might be good on the tackling of anti-Semitism front, there is this blurred line we've spoken about many times before about where anti-Semitism ends and anti-Israel begins. It'll sharpen that line. It it should do anyway. And a a lot of anti-Semitism doesn't start with Jew hate. It starts with a political idea of, of what Israel is, often warped, often poisoned. Hopefully now there'll be a demarcation and people who go on this who perhaps have feelings about Israel that aren't often bedded in truth and reality will have their their perceptions altered in a positive way. I would also hope that going on a a trip like this for people who haven't perhaps made up their minds about whether they're anti-Israel or pro-Israel or where exactly they stand, that certainly the use of Nazi rhetoric will become all the more untenable that they'll realize that actually comparing what's going on in Israel with the Nazis is just a ridiculous way to compare and contrast and I think in terms of that it will certainly help as Richard said sharpen their ideas about what exactly the Holocaust was. Yeah I mean the word Auschwitz it's it's well known but there's been poll after poll of, of people particularly around university age and younger who just simply don't have a concept of what the word means they might think honestly I've seen polls where they think it's a German football club or Hitler was the manager of the national football team to actually go there and see the scale I mean of course it's 70 years after the event it's just a big windswept vacant area with you know markings where huts used to be in a and a memorial but to simply see the scale and just to feel that impact on you it does leave a lasting impression and there's going to be 200 initially undergraduates going on this scheme and and hopefully what they experience can be shared in the years and decades to come. We'll cover more of this later on in the schmooze as that's our subject for today's programme. However, let's look at some of the other stories because we've nearly used up all time on that. Now, Stamford Hill, who is about to move in there? It's getting some new residents. Yeah, so we're talking about the greatest genocide in the history of of, of humankind, the greatest tragedy, and now a modern-day one which is taking place in Yemen, this appalling civil war that is basically a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians, with the the Houthis taking over Yemen and tens of of millions, literally, of people displaced. The Jewish community used to be quite vibrant in, in Yemen, certainly at the turn of the last century. Now there's only 40 left in the country and a family of six with relatives in Stamford Hill, would you believe it, are hoping to come to the UK to to be resettled. And we've been luckily privy to uh, see names and dates and the birth dates of these six people, two of whom are teenagers, who are very keen to come to this country. It will be a life-saving move if they do. Brandon Lewis, who was actually Minister for Immigration before last week's reshuffle, was asked to consider their exceptional circumstances. Now, of course, a, a new person is in that role. It's going to take them a while to get up to speed. But time is of the essence here in a, an appalling civil war that's taking many, many lives. Let's hope this family can be saved. OK, well, obviously, we wish them all the best. And let's have a look now at one of the other stories. Fran, you've been meeting with Director of Rigby Impeller, June Kenton. Yes, I spoke to June earlier this week. She is actually was actually the Queen's bra fitter. Very unfortunately, her company has been stripped of the royal warrant that it had for many years because she, well, following the publication of her memoirs, Storm in a D-Cup, and apparently it caused a bit of a storm in a Buckingham Palace. She received a letter 
in May informing her that the warrant which a company has held since 1960 and which she herself has had since 1982 has actually been cancelled Buckingham Palace were a little bit upset with what she had said in but what did she say her book well this because is the I've thing I've been spending mm. and I know this is a family show but I've been spending the last few days if not week trying to ascertain Her Majesty's bra size because that that seemed to be what was let out of the bag well well this is <laughs> again no pun intended well this is the thing it, obviously they were upset in some way however when i spoke to june she said there was nothing in the book that so what did the queen take exception to then well, because it was known that she is the, the queen's bra fitter yes. what what additional I, I information think, is the queen upset about i think well it it would really be up to her majesty to tell us exactly what it was that was upsetting but just to round it off <laughs> June Kenton feels absolutely distraught by the fact that she's lost this royal warrant. And I guess you'd have to read the book yourself to decide if there is anything in there. But well, personally, just, I've looked at it and I don't think she really did step I was going to say, just for the record, I've read that book cover yeah. to cover and I don't personally believe that there was anything. But then again, having said that, Buckingham Palace has commented saying that they don't comment on individual cases. But anyway, we will find out more when we speak to June later on in this programme. Now, really quickly, let's shoehorn one more in. And Fran, you have been meeting some, well, Hollywood royalty. Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks. I mean... And that when, was all in one day. Can I just say, I'm really sorry, you just dropped some very big... Let me just pick this up. I'm just going to pick up these big names that you've just dropped. <laughs> when I told Richard I was going along to this, he said, oh, it's the mother load. I guess it is in some ways. <laughs> they were all in London for a press conference for Spielberg's latest film, The Post, which is based on the true life story of the Washington Post and its battle to publish the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers, of course, were these top secret documents which were leaked and essentially revealed that the Vietnam War was completely unwinnable and the government knew that and they had absolutely no chance of ever ending the conflict well for themselves, but instead they ramped it up and continued to make things worse. So that's essentially what the film is looking at. Spielberg did touch upon, obviously, the personal story of Catherine Graham, who Meryl Streep plays, who was the publisher of the Washington Post and what a great, strong, brave woman she was in journalism. And he spoke more widely as well about women in Hollywood and really women's role generally in society today. He felt that things are getting better. We are moving in the right direction. Excellent. What page is that on if people want to read that? That is on page 25. Marvellous. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But please do not forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've been hearing, luxury lingerie firm Rigby and Pella has been stripped of its royal warrant that it's held for many a year. It comes after the publication of director June Kenton's autobiography, Storm in a D-Cup, that was released last year. Well, I've been speaking to June to get her reaction to this, and I started by asking her to tell us when she first found out the news. Oh, it was, it was last May. Couldn't believe that they didn't like the book seems extraordinary and you've got to read the book yourself to see what you think but I haven't haven't found anybody who thinks what I said was at all unpleasant or not what one should say. What I find extraordinary and speaking as someone who has read your book cover to cover and may I just say not because I'm in your presence because I wholeheartedly mean this it's riveting so to anyone who has not read it 
I urge you to do so because it is, well, it is truly fascinating. You've lived an extraordinary life and continue to do so. But of course, this is just one horrible twist in it. But I couldn't see anything in that book. In fact, I would go so far as to say I distinctly remember one of the opening lines of your book, correct me if I'm wrong, is that for those who want to read this, thinking they're going to get secrets about the palace, you've picked up the wrong book. You even almost say that. You precursor it before you start. Well, I've I had the raw warrant for nearly 40 years and I'm sure nobody's ever read or and I have ever said anything at all that has gone on in Buckingham Palace. We even used to use other people's carrier bags to deliver stuff so it didn't have Rigby and Pella on it. We were that careful. So when something went into the royal household, into Buckingham Palace, nobody knew what it was because it wasn't Rigby and Pella a carrier bag. I have never, ever spoken, and nor have my staff, about anything that we've ever seen in the fitting room. And sometimes you hear the most unbelievable stories, but it's not something that you do. You you are being very discreet. And I have always been discreet. And I would suggest as well that probably in your line of work anyway, that let's not overlook it's not just because it's royalty we're talking about here. Discretion probably goes with it anyway, just because why would you go around talking about your work? Well, I mean, you don't come out the fitting room and start to say what you've seen. It's not anything for anybody else. It's between you and the customer. And royalty is very much the same. It's no hardship to us because we never, ever spoke about anything. Can you, I know this might be a bit sort of horrible to make you relive it, but when you got the letter informing you, what was going through your mind when you were reading the words that were in front of you? shock I just couldn't speak I just was so shocked because I just could not believe that I said anything that anybody would take umbrage about in this book and it didn't mention in the letter why yes I have no business to divulge anything at all in my book which I don't think I have but obviously i mentioned when I went to the Queen for the very first time, because it is a very, very wonderful, very scary thing to do. But, you know, I I didn't think in the book it really meant an awful lot. You have reacted to this by apologising to Her Majesty, haven't you? Without question. I've written to her, I've written to her, her dresser, and... I wouldn't have had it happen for the world. I just perhaps didn't realise that I really and truly should have shown Buckingham Palace before it was printed. I really didn't think that there was anything in there that needed to have a censorship about. But does that mean then in that case you regret writing your autobiography? No, I wrote the autobiography for my children for Rigby and Pella, how we rescued Rigby and Pella, and it's become a national name. It's worldwide. It's international, isn't it, really? It's worldwide. And I feel very, very proud of that. So I wouldn't have done anything at all, knowingly, just to spoil our name. 
Well, Storm in a D cup by name, Storm in a teacup by nature, how extraordinary the reaction to this has been. Well, I suppose anything to do with bras or of that sort of subject is always a bit of hello, hello, hello. But <laughs> <laughs> but what can what can you do? I've been involved with hello, hello, hello bras for years and for me it's perfectly normal. But in particular, this story about the warrant being taken back has gone everywhere. I mean, I've, I've heard that it's been reported in Australia as well yeah. or something like that. Oh, it the, seems bizarre. The, the whole world knows. Please buy it and tell me honestly what you think. But can we be fair about this as well and say that actually you're not the first individual? Let's clarify this, because is it you as an individual who holds the warrant or is it Rigby and Pella? An individual holds the Royal Warrant. Right. It is me. But you are not the first individual slash on behalf of organisation who has lost a Royal Warrant. But yet when that's happened in the past with various brands such as I think Hoover and Volkswagen have been some that have gone as well before you. I don't remember quite as much fuss being made. Well, Rigby Impella and Bras is a bit of a naughty subject. And if you want to make it naughty, you can. And I suppose it was inevitable that when it did come out, that people would have been really, really shocked. So because you found out about this a while back, didn't you? Oh, I found out. I knew last May what had happened. I'd really got over it, really. But I don't want to put you on the spot, but why, why did you not, as it were, go public with that at the time? Well, it's not something to boast about. You don't boast about losing a raw warrant. It's it's a big, big shock. What happens next? I assume that Rigby and Pella, which although we should be clear, actually, you've... Is it fair to say that you've sort of stepped back a bit from Rigby well, and Pella anyway? Well, we sold Rigby and Pella in 2011. And, but, but still, I do go out talking for all sorts of charities. Got high coming up. And... It's something that I feel I'm putting back into charity by going out and speaking about, because I'm a speaker, and and as a speaker, they can advertise it and have an evening. And to me, that is what I'm putting back into life. So is that what happens next now, hopefully, just more of that and, and carrying on doing what you do so well? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't stop going out and speaking about it, because it, it is a money spinner for different charities. So I'm still going to do it. On the plus side, though, this has sparked a renewed interest in your book. And it would appear as if it's flying off the shelves. So if anyone wants it, I suppose they've got to go and get a copy. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's certainly a great side to this whole saga. Buy the book and find out what what I've said and what you think is bad about it. June Kenton, director of Rigby Impeller, speaking to me there on the loss of the royal warrant. I should point out at this stage that when asked for a comment, Buckingham Palace has said that it did not comment on individual companies. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News and still to come on this edition. Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and journalist and author Emma Klein. 
They'll be discussing what you heard a little earlier on in the paper review about the government announcing that it is to fund university students' trips to Auschwitz in a bid to try and help further Holocaust education. And we'll be asking the question whether or not that we believe that that will go some way to helping Jewish university students with the problems that they face on campus at the moment. Plus, Harley Baptist will be speaking to Rosalind Bluestone, the founder and CEO of Goods for Good, about the work that her organisation does. But first, it's always been known that Jews have travelled around the world at various points in history. But what about our association with Italy? Well, a lecture by tour guide Stephen Burstein, which is coming up at JW3, looks at Jewish Rome. And arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Stephen to find out more. I should say at this stage that we apologise in advance for the quality of the audio that you're about to hear. But unfortunately, modern technology once in a while comes back to bite us. And in this instance, it didn't quite record the lovely Stephen and Kate's interview properly. So please do bear with us. And as the old saying goes, do not adjust your sets. Well, Kate started all the same, asking Stephen to tell us what exactly he does as a tour guide. Well, I conduct about 10 different tours in and around London, mostly with Jewish themes, although uh, I do also conduct tours to Hampton Court Palace, Windsor Castle, with or without Jewish connections. What was your interest? How did you get involved? Well, I uh, started conducting tours uh, actually in Rome about 12 years ago. I lived in Rome for three years. I was uh, adopted by a fascinating family in Rome, which traced its origins back to the very first Jewish settlers from the Holy Land more than 2,000 years ago. And they taught me about Jewish Rome, and I found the subject most enthralling. And after three months, I began conducting guided tours of the Jewish ghetto. When you're conducting tours, do you have to have a certain minimum number of people, or how does it work best? Because you want, you want a good atmosphere, I take it. Indeed. Uh, I conduct both public tours, and I also conduct private tours for uh, individual families. Most of the private tours, I must say, are uh, tourists from America, Canada, Australia. But I also uh, conduct tours for synagogues, uh, church groups, uh, senior citizen parties, schools quite a varied selection of uh, clients. I've often wondered, actually, recently, whether, whether things are changing in the modern world, whether you have to adapt to technology or whether you're still sort of trying to, you know, wave an umbrella and call people, or are we wearing headphones and, and seeing you all kind of virtually these days? Well, I do have a portable digital amplifier. I suppose that's my contribution to modern technology. I must admit I've recently read about a new Google invention which uh, immediately translates so uh, I'm tempted to consider this maybe for visiting groups of, from uh, other countries. Do you find you have clingers on, people that, people that hang on? They sort of can hear something interesting going on in the background and then try and, try and uh, sort of stick with you. What do you do? Well, it, it does happen, I must admit. I suppose my most popular tour is uh, the old Jewish Quarter, which includes uh, Bevis Mark Synagogue. And after our visit inside with... Uh, with a group on one occasion, a couple from America did tag on and asked if they could join. I, I mentioned it was, uh, yes, just £10 a head. And they said, this, that's fine with them. And five minutes before the end of the tour, they did a runner. Let's get back to Rome. That's, that's not very nice. What are you doing in Rome? What do, what do, what's on offer? 
Well, I, as I mentioned, used to conduct tours, walking tours in Rome, and I'm basing my Jewish Rome lecture, which is uh, this January the 31st at the JW3, I'm basing it on the conducted tours I used to give in Rome, and covers the roller coaster existence of the Jewish community going back 2,000 years, from the period of Julius Caesar, who was extremely kind to the Jewish people, life under the Medici popes, the traumatic 300-year period of incarceration for the Jewish community behind the ghetto walls, and more recently the period under Mussolini and the terrible, terrible few years of Nazi occupation in Rome. Leading up, of course, to the present day where the Jewish community is extremely vibrant. So there has been quite a, quite a sort of checkered history going on for, for the Jews. We, sort of, we, know, we, knew, we knew some of that. How do you... How do you take a group and kind of get them into the spirit of it? I mean, is it just, you know, your feet are aching, you've been walking all day? I'm just thinking of the practicalities as well as the history. Being a, a young 60-odd-year-old that I am, uh, I'm uh, extremely fit. I uh, always let clients know in advance how long the tours will be, but uh, fortunately I like to think that my tour is, uh, my walking tours, that is, are uh, interesting enough to make as many say afterwards, the time just simply fly. When you're on the, on the tours and you want to actually get into the history, do you think it's necessary to do a little bit of research beforehand? Well, I always find it fascinating when their clients show a great interest in the subject. Mm. And uh, as a result, they ask, ask questions galore. And I'm very pleased. It uh, enhances the enjoyment for me as well. So you don't feel put on the spot. I often wonder that when, you, when you're walking around people. Is it, is it sort of distracting from what you were going to tell them, how people butting in all the time? No, not at all. Uh, again, it uh, shows they're interested. They're here to enjoy themselves. They're, they're here to learn. But also, if they contribute as well, I'm delighted. When we go to people come to the tour, anybody can come, presumably, to JW3. Oh, certainly. It's not, it's not a question of just Jewish people. As a number of clients have said to me in the past, both attending tours and lectures, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Jewish history and Jewish stories. Do you find that you have, in a talk, you're going to be able to explain your, what you see as the magic of Rome? Oh, certainly. And it certainly is magical. You've chosen the right word. It's a fascinating lecture accompanied by countless colour slides, a little bit of music too. It really is a wonderful story. Tour guide Stephen Burstyn talking to our arts editor Kate Fulton there about his forthcoming lecture at JW3 Jewish Rome. It's on the 31st of January. And for more information, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and we always like to hear from you. So if you would like to comment along with any of the subjects that you hear throughout the programme, please feel free to email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can always find us on social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Now, it's normally at this stage that I would be reminding you to tune into the live stream of The Schmooze, which will give you the opportunity to comment along as and when the discussion unfolds. The time for our streaming of The Schmooze has now changed. You can now watch the live stream of The Schmooze every Wednesday lunchtime at 12.30pm. So that is Wednesdays, 12.30pm to catch all that happens in the live schmooze discussion. Please do watch it. Please do comment along and we will try and read some of those comments out as and when we get them. 
Now, have you heard of an organization called Goods for Good? Well, if not, you soon will do because they are a relatively new charity that has been set up to try and help redistribute surplus items to those most in need. Our very own Harley Baptiste has been finding out more about this for us by speaking to founder and CEO Rosalind Bluestone. And Harley started by asking Rosalind to tell us what exactly the charity's mission is. Goods for Good is a charity, a startup charity, because we're only three and a half years in. We source goods from British industry and also from the community, and we send those goods delivering a lifeline of essentials to vulnerable communities overseas. So our mission is to help people, mostly overseas, with British overstock goods and to ensure that mums have nappies for their babies, that refugees have blankets to sleep and to survive the winter. There are hundreds of thousands of refugees in this Syrian Kurdistan, northern Iraq area, living under canvas and in the mud. And to think that many of those families don't have shoes, nappies, blankets, clothing for their children, just beggars' belief and... I decided to set up this charity to do something about it. And you guys have been going for about three years now, I believe? So it's three and a half years. When you say us guys, it's been me in the driving seat. And obviously, I have trustees being a registered charity, so I have a lot of support. And recently, we've taken on a, a young graduate, a Cambridge graduate, who's helping as well. But we're working with a Dutch Christian registered charity who are based near Amsterdam. So, yes, it is us guys. It is very collaborative, but I've been running it most of the time, single-handedly, the day-to-day and the logistics. Obviously, with international distribution of humanitarian aid, there is a huge amount of administration and logistics, moving trucks, loading trucks, and, of course, We also have our community outreach. We have over 140 volunteers who help us on a regular basis. And in fact, we've one of the things I'm very proud about is that we've built up a network of interfaith volunteers. So it's Jewish, Muslim, Mormons, Christian, all faiths who come together to help us sort and pack some of the donations that we get in from the community. So those donations come in from schools, churches, individuals, from mosques, and we all work together to sort and pack. We come together to help a cause that we all believe in. I think you used a really important word in there, community, and that is exactly how it seems to how it seems to be that everyone, as you say, of all different faiths, of all different ages, of all different types, are all coming together and contributing as many goods as possible and what has now become over 10 million pounds worth of goods by the end of December. That's correct. We're very proud of this milestone that we've reached and actually even this month we've had another half a million pounds worth of goods in the pipeline so it looks like that we're going to be able to reach our target. We we aim to collect £25 million worth of goods by 2020. We want to improve and reach more people and more communities overseas. You're not even 
too far from halfway and we're not even a month into 2018 yet so that's pretty amazing yes um, we're very proud of that very proud and and of course we have a huge amount of help from our donor companies big companies high street companies who donate a lot of overstocked goods which would otherwise end up in landfill actually our charity is providing a service to industry to help them to dispose in inverters commas of their overstock goods and help them get to where they need to be on people's backs rather than being incinerated and of course there is an advantage for companies donating goods apart from their csr policies and ticking that that box corporate social responsibility apart from that obviously there's a tax benefit if they're writing off stock and also if they're transporting that stock to us they can write that off as an expense it must be more important than ever in in the past couple of years especially so with such a huge influx of obviously refugees not just coming to the uk but all over europe and various parts of the world it must be incredibly important to to you guys to be able to send a lot of these goods over to the countries where people aren't able to actually get a, get away from and, and they are, for the most part, stuck there with very little help and very little aid. It's really important for us to be able to do that. It's not only the refugees, we're also supporting the communities in Ukraine and Moldova, both new, Jewish and non-Jewish communities, of course, and Syria, the Philippines, African countries with football kits, like loads and loads of football boots and football kits that have been overstocked. It's really important for us. And what's also really important for us now, and this is something that we've started doing recently, is also reaching out to local community needs with our second-hand goods. Not with the new goods, because all the goods that we get have to leave the UK and the EU, but with certainly with community donations, we are able to help the homeless women who are in refuges and young homeless people who have to, uh, what they call, couch surf. We're collaborating now with at least six or seven local charities and Auburn, Barnet. We're forming these collaborations. This is something that is new for us. And our volunteers are very excited about this, as we are the trustees of Goods for Good. So how can our local listeners and people in the local communities around here, how can they get involved? What can they do? Obviously, this work doesn't come without its challenges. And the big one of our biggest challenges is that we are underfunded and we need to raise funds. But, of course, it's not always about money. It's also about engaging with the community and time. So we do a lot of community outreach and we love empowering children, for example. So we've recently done some projects with children where they've collected stationery at home and asked their friends and families to help them and brought those goods into our warehouse help pack them or they posted it in from schools even far away we've had parcels coming in from you know south london and places like that other challenges is that we if there's anybody out there who could help us with some warehouse space we're looking for a landlord with some empty space obviously 
we need things like pants and socks for the homeless. And I'm sure if every one of your listeners could send us or bring us a pair of pants or socks that are in you know new condition, just one simple gesture could mean so much to one person. So I believe that our charity give people an opportunity to get involved in a very simple way because whether you're helping somebody who's homeless here or somebody that's homeless overseas, that mitzvah, that gesture of goodwill is so important. And of course, that could be continued through shuls or cheders or churches. Whoever is listening, we'd be very delighted to have offers of, of help in any way. Rosalind Bluestone, founder and CEO of Goods for Good, speaking to the Jewish Fuses Harley Baptist there about the work that her relatively new organisation does. For more information, including how you can get involved, then please do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are journalist and author Emma Klein and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. The subject for this edition is based on the news that the government has said it will fund a £144,000 project that extends the Holocaust Educational Trust's Auschwitz programme to universities for the first time. Now the question is, what do we believe educating university students in Holocaust education will do in the long term? Let's start with you, Emma. Surely this can only be a step in the right direction. Well, I would have thought so. I mean, as I've probably said a million times, my husband is the son of Holocaust survivors. And for a long time, he couldn't deal with it at all. He couldn't speak to his parents or anything. It was too painful. Much later in the last few years, he's taken it on board. And in fact, he wrote a very a good article that went in the Catholic Journal, The Tablet, about being the son of survivors. It went in for Holocaust Memorial Day, I think, in 2016, and they thought it was great. So I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm Sephardi, and we've had no sort of suffering. But I think to remember the Holocaust is incredibly important. And if the government is sponsoring something, and university students might well be the people who don't care. I mean, young kids might take it in more. But if there's a proper program for university students, I think then that's a very, very positive thing. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I just want to say one thing to you, though, because something you said. The Sephardim suffer greatly on the island of Rhodes, Rhodes Island. I think you've told me, yeah. Yes, there were only five survivors. That's shocking. And I've met one of them. I mean, no, my, my background was from the paternal grandmother's side was originally from Spain, then they were kicked out, then they were in Aleppo, then they went to India, and the others were from Baghdad or Basra or whatever, you know, there for ages, and then they went to India. So no one was in a dangerous place at the time of the Holocaust. Yeah, that's something, of course, it's also part of the educational trust, which would be so good, people to be taught about the very different places that the Jews have come. Absolutely, I think that's important. Let's see what the others think. Well, I recently went to the Imperial War Museum and went to the Holocaust exhibition there, which I've seen before. And 
we were all struck by the school children there, and they are younger than university, but there were so many school children of various creeds or color. It didn't matter, it was irrelevant. And the silence and respect that they were treating all the different exhibits, some were a bit too much for them. But I thought that was incredible, and I'm all for education. However, are we purely talking about the Nazis when we say the Holocaust? No, we're talking about, I suppose we're talking about anti-Semitism oh, right. as such. Uh, because <laughs> which, which happens everywhere, unfortunately. Absolutely. I know it's going to be Holocaust Memorial Day coming up, mm -hmm. and I was asked to write a, a poem for it, which oh. I've done. Well done. But um, in it, I was asked to write about not just the... Jews, but about Srebrenica and Afur and all the other places. So I just wondered whether it would be the Holocaust in general or, what can I say, our Holocaust? I was just thinking as you were talking, how does it affect children? Because you're saying about children going to the Imperial War Museum and seeing yes. this. If their family history doesn't, they're not Jewish, let's say, or their family history doesn't encompass any Holocaust survivors or they've never seen any of this, does it affect them? My non-Jewish friends aren't affected by things, well, they are now because they know me, but in general, they're not affected by something like uh, there's been a bomb blast in Jerusalem. They hear it. And it doesn't affect them every day, so they turn away from it. And I wonder if the children that aren't Jewish and don't have Holocaust survivors within their family or the family never went through the Holocaust, do they see this and then they go home and forget about it? Yeah, that's very possible. But those aren't the ones that, that they're getting at. It's, it's the Auschwitz program to universities for the first time. And it's because so many of the young people who go to universities are not just ignorant in the sense that you implied, but they also come from families that might positively or negatively have a slightly anti-Semitic feel. Mm -hmm. So if they're university students, they're, they're, they're older, so they can probably take in more and it might mean a yes. lot more mm. to yes. them, yes. that I understand. But it would be a good idea if they did start teaching so children earlier on and then when they get to university age... Generally, not, nothing then to... Then they would have some sort of knowledge about it. You see, I can remember meeting many, many, many years ago now, but it's still, it still is part of it. I can remember meeting someone who said when he discovered that he was a Jew, that I was a Jew rather, yeah. he said, oh, I'm not supposed to be a friend with Jews. <laughs> really? Ouch. Was that what his parents had taught That's him? That's what his parents had taught was him. Was this in Zimbabwe or was it No, I, it was in this country. Right, right. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Then the uh, best education he could have had was meeting you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, but he he was a bit worried. What if I go home and say I this guy I've just met? He's a Jew, yeah. and they will say to me, and I like him, but they will say to me, "You mustn't have anything more." To I do wonder with what their prejudice was. The parents' prejudice was to make them put that onto their children or onto their son. Well, it's it's a thing that many non-Jewish people in this country I've learned over the years have they don't think they're anti-semitic but they have a very negative view mm. towards yes. Jews. Well, something's happened with the parents hasn't it my wife who when she was studying window dressing at <laughs> university or college another girl said oh 
we don't like Jews because they're mean. <laughs> and it turned out, she said, you can't be Jewish, she said to my wife, because they're all mean. It turned out that her father was in the bedroom fitting business and obviously had a lot of Jewish customers who tried to barter him down with money and everything else. <laughs> well, and it yeah. had gone on to the daughter. And, you know, she thought that all Jews were mean, which isn't true, of course. So no. this, this anti-Semitism had passed on to her. Now, if Helen hadn't cleared that up, who knows what it, she'd have passed on to her children. Well, exactly. I've, oh, yeah. I've got a, a text from Lisa. I believe education on the events and history of the Holocaust is essential at all stages of learning. However, I feel that this should also be about the genocides that have taken place since. It is so important that we are reminded of the great loss of life and the stories of survival. And she's absolutely right. 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 And that means that although some of the students won't be Jewish, many, most maybe, but many, and they won't be touched by our Holocaust, the Auschwitz, but they will possibly be touched by the Dafurs, the Sebrenitsas, well, or the other... You, you mean going to see the, well, the thing about the holo- the, our Holocaust might then make them is. learn, yes. uh, go to see how they but can learn course, about the others? But of course, our Holocaust wasn't just our Holocaust, because there were 10 million people. Gypsies and the other 4 million were gypsies and homosexuals and all other things, lots of other things. So, I mean, it's utterly ridiculous to think of it as being... A Jewish yeah, Holocaust. Yeah, we too tend to think we like that. We do. We have sort of taken ownership in a mm-hmm. way. Well, it was. Rightly yeah. so, because it was mainly us. It was a big, yeah. it was yeah. a big the amount majority of people. Of them the majority were. Yes. were Jews. Yeah. Yes. But nonetheless, is it a good thing what they're doing to I you? I think so, You all yes. think. I think so too. I yeah, think. I can't disagree with that, even though sometimes I'd like to take the opposite view just to G everybody up. Well, I take the opposite view. No, I what, can't. What is the opposite view? I don't view? think there is. I think it's so essential that people learn about the Holocaust, every Holocaust. Mm. And the total murder of 10 million people by the Nazis is something that should never be forgotten. Absolutely. Can I ask, is this for students of a particular subject or is it for all university students? It's. I think it's for all mm. university students. That's as far as I understand it. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's to try and, get, try and get the story of Auschwitz across. Mm-hmm. And, if, and as I've said before, if you've been to Auschwitz, you never forget Auschwitz. No. And perhaps universities should take all students to Auschwitz. I think Germ- as a compulsory Germ- thing. Germany does, yeah, does doesn't think, it? Yes, it takes all of, their school children to they Auschwitz. Do a lot of yes, they do. It's part of their Auschwitz. education. Yeah. The, the Germans are absolutely amazing. Mm. They are absolutely fantastic, and they they feel even the current Germans who have nothing to do with the Holocaust. Mm feel a certain guilt. Mm. Yeah, they do. Do you think this will go some way to helping the issues facing Jewish students on university campuses? I mean, in particular, referencing anti-Semitism? I hope so, but maybe if you're that entrenched in an idea, I mean, people can tell you what to say, they can tell you what to do, nobody can tell you what to To feel feel. and Mm. to think. So I hope. Interesting. So I yes, you, you've Sorry. got a point because Jewish young people grow up in exactly the same way yeah. as non-Jewish young True. people grow up, being influenced by their parents mm. mm-hmm. and by their parents' view. And there are many Jewish people who have this. Is it a, a sort of inbuilt sort of? Is it guilt? Is it's it a guilt, guilt, guilt feeling. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know why they should. 
anybody should feel guilty apart from the people that are doing the atrocities. Yes. The people that lived through and, and were victims of the atrocities shouldn't feel guilty about talking about it, but they do, a lot of them do. Not so much these days. I think the Educational Trust, the Holocaust mm-hmm. Educational Trust has brought a lot of people out and a lot of people are happy to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I think up to that point, I think people were embarrassed and they I, passed that guilt on to the children. And I think victims of all sorts of abuse mm. feel guilty about yeah. what happened. Mm. Yes, the victims of abuse, yeah. yeah. So you must never talk about these things. No, you must. Oh, no, I think I'm you not must. saying no, that, that, but I'm saying how they feel. No, I'm not saying that. That's, how, that's what I'm that's saying. Yeah. saying. Yeah. I think that should be the opposite view. I think it should be spoken about so the guilt is, is yeah, brought away absolutely. from the children. And away from the people. Now, is the £144,000 project, it seems to me to be a tremendous amount of money. What are they going to do with all that money to extend the Holocaust? Who's going trust? to be in charge of it, of the programme? I'm not sure. It's the people who run the Holocaust Educational Trust. Trust, right. Whether they are a mixture of people who suffered from the Holocaust, whether they are just people who are interested in the Holocaust, it's the Educational Trust which goes around trying to turn people's opinions onto... onto. The Educational Trust, uh, of course, are the ones that got the survivors to talk about their experiences. And the survivors go to schools and give talks to young children. That's very important, isn't it? Yes. I think you mentioned that, how... You know, stunned some of the young children were. And there's this amazing old lady who was in Auschwitz mm-hmm. who now sits where students are coming and waits for them to come and talk to her. She knows that she, is, that she will tell them about the Holocaust and her experiences, and she does just one person to one person. And they walk up to her and they say, we believe you can tell us about the Holocaust. Amazing woman. There was a long article about her in the newspapers and also on television. That's, that's, mm. that's nice to hear, actually, that people want to come up to her and ask her the question. Yes. Rather than her going up to people and Well, no, she them. just sits there. Sits there and waits. Where, and where, waits. where does she brilliant. sit? Where and she is? speaks person to person. I, I'm not absolutely mm. sure there's a picture that of her. Brilliant. And she was sitting on a big cushion. <laughs> How long do you think it'll take um, for this to make a difference to future generations? Well, that's a very good question. Who wants to answer it? What do you think? How long do you think it'll take? I don't know. It's always underlying, and we know it's always been there. And and I'm going to quote what I always quote. If we come back in 3,000 years' time, we'll still be talking about the anti-Semitism. Because actually, I I I actually believe this this is almost... Uh, true, that the Almighty believes this is what the Jew must do because he says you've got to teach everyone the truth. Mm-hmm. You've got to show everyone the truth, and you cannot show the truth unless you're telling people about it right. all the time. Right. Anyway, there it is. We'll have to leave it at that point because our time is up. Thank you very much indeed for talking about it. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. 
I'm always struck by the opening of the Torah portion Bo. Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh, God says to Moses, for I have hardened his heart. Time and again, Moses is called upon to encounter this tyrant who has enslaved his people. Moses and Aaron are alone in their confrontation with power. What gives Moses the endurance, the inner strength, the moral courage to tell truth to power again and again and again? I think it is rooted in two earlier experiences of Moses' life that have given him the conviction that this is his responsibility. One is that scene he saw in which the Egyptian taskmasters smite a Hebrew. At that moment, he knows who his brothers are and who his sisters are. He may have grown up in the palace, but his brothers and sisters are the oppressed, the slaves who are suffering. And that picture that he sees then, he can never get out of his conscience. He can't live his life as if he hadn't observed that injustice. And when God tells him to go to Pharaoh and free the children of Israel, Moses says, who am I? I'm heavy of tongue. I can't do this. And, and, and God says to Moses, who makes a mouth? Who made your tongue? Who gives a person the capacity for speech or takes it away? It's God. Therefore, go. And I think what Moses understands from that moment is that he's not a chooser. To be able to speak is a gift that has to be used. It's, it's owed to God. And therefore, the combination of that scene of injustice he saw and the sense that his very life and responsibility belongs to this sacred task, they give him the courage to confront tyranny again and again and again in a world which is far from free for injustice. It's a moral courage we all need. I can't help but think that by listening to what Rabbi Wittenberg was saying just then, that one of the easiest things to do in this life is just to remain silent and to not say anything. But it actually takes real courage and effort to use one's power of words to speak up. And I suppose in some weird way, that's rich coming from me, considering that I talk for a living. But it does take a certain element of courage and it does maybe make you think about how you use that courage. Anyway, all the same. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests, to June Kenton of Rigby and Pella, talking about the loss of the royal warrant, to tour guide Stephen Burstein, talking about his forthcoming lecture at JW3 called Jewish Rome. Don't forget that's on the 31st of January. Rosalind Bluestone, founder and CEO of Goods for Good, talking about the incredible work her organisation does. Thank you very much to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.